So we'll read uh, Ruth chapter 1, the last few verses. We're going to focus on verses 19 through 22 tonight. So as you can see in the, the handout, there, the first part of the chapter structure is one through six. They went to Moab, they returned from Moab. So that's the way the Hebrew you know, begins and closes off a section. And then seven through 22, she set out with her two daughters to return to Judah. Verse 19 they, returned, they went until they came to Bethlehem. Uh, so that's one part of the beginning and end, but it's as though the narrator said, however, there's one more thing. And then he includes this section 19 through 22, and you'll see it repeats itself. Uh, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of bar- barley harvest. So Uh, commentators point out that what the narrator is doing is he's closing off and saying they're back. But one more thing, the final expression of her pain, the the crying out of her agony, we've got to add that. And then she's back in Jerusalem. So it's a way to underscore this final apex uh, expression of Naomi uh, of her pain. Uh, So that's that's how this spins out here in the first uh, chapter. And then we'll look some at the structure of, of her cry here in the second part of that. <clears throat> so verse uh, 19. And you notice at, at first it was she with her two daughters-in-law, but now it's the two of them. So she was a mi- Ruth was a minor character. The main character was Naomi. And now, because of Ruth's confession, because of Ruth's importance in this story, it's the two of them return. So the narrator's underscoring it's a different situation because of Ruth's confession, because of Ruth's presence. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So... Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Lord, bless us as we dig into this passage, this uh, stirring cry and exchange with Naomi and these women help us to learn how to deal with our pain and suffering and how to keep you front and center in the midst of everything we go through, Lord, Uh, to count you as our sovereign who brings all things about in our lives, no matter from what evil source they may come. 
uh, you ultimately are the sovereign over our lives and nothing else and no one else is. Uh, Help us, Lord, all the more to uh, lay hold of this central truth of Scripture. We ask for your glory and honor. Amen. So in addition, as we've said, for Ruth being one of the most beautiful pieces in ancient literature, it is also one of the most encouraging uh, pieces of literature. It's encouraging because it focuses on the problem of human suffering. God doesn't ignore human suffering. He writes books about it, right? Brings it front and center. Let's talk about suffering. The whole book of Job, of course, is about that as well. So the writer describes, as we've seen quite abruptly, the death of Naomi's husband and her two sons. It gives this feel. Naomi turns around and suddenly all of her closest loved ones are dead. There's no description of how they died or why they died. It reflects how cruel and capricious life can be. No explanations, no reasons, just senseless, shocking, shattering tragedy. There it happened, just like that. I had seen my good friend Mike Sartell in October. He was on the board with me, RYM board, for uh, several years. And just that December, he was coming back from their Christmas vacation. A car crossed the median, crashed into their car. He was killed with his six-year-old son, who was friends with our, our son. And then... While also, this is when we were in Columbus, while also in Columbus, Chuck Armstrong, uh, who had been to seminary himself, was teaching Sunday school. He had a regular job, but he was a great teacher. He was teaching Sunday school, taught on Sunday. Monday, he got to feeling bad. Tuesday, he checked in the hospital. It was pancreatitis. Thursday, he was dead. That's the feel of Ruth 1 through 6, chapter 1, 1 through 6. Suddenly they were all there, they're in Moab, and then everybody's dead. The feel of, the, uh, of this chapter. So now, with this double ending, so to speak, it ends in verse 19. They came back to Bethlehem, but let's hear one more thing. Let's hear her cry about her suffering and her statements, her, her cry out about, her crying about God himself. But you could say that this, at verse 22, it's the end of act one. It's the Moab loss, the Moab tragedy, the Moab episode, or the stage is set in Moab. And now we've come back. So it's interesting in 19... Uh, B when it says they came to Bethlehem because up to that point where hours and hours of traveling have just been compressed into a few verses all this time of traveling but then when she arrives the the cameras start rolling to catch all the details the narrative slows down here and to catch the subtlety of this the Hebrew language here one commentator translates it this way when they entered Bethlehem All the women of the town buzzed with excitement because of them, saying, is this really Naomi? And the emphasis, it's it's an exclamation, and the emphasis isn't on this, it's on Naomi. Can this be Naomi? Why, it's Naomi. (laughs) No way, no way. This could be Naomi. And they're all just going crazy. Well, 
that's especially painful for Naomi to hear her name, Pleasant, just over and over and over, Pleasant's here, Pleasant's here, Pleasant's here, and she stops the party, right? No way. The whole structure, in fact, of the second half of that first that page I handed out is to emphasize the, the pain of her life. And you'll see here the emphasis of Shaddai, who's the Almighty, Yahweh, who's the covenant God name, but they're the same God, two aspects of his uh, sovereignty. And you'll see it's Shaddai, Yahweh, Yahweh, Shaddai. That's a typical Hebrew way to describe something. And it's very carefully laid out and, and the contrasts are strong as we'll see in the second part, the wordplay too. Yahweh has spoken against me. Yah, Yah, Shaddai has pronounced disaster upon me. And then wordplay 1b, I full went away, empty has brought me back Yahweh. Right? Just some the, the strong Hebrew emphasis, almost poetic, it's hard to get out uh, in the English, but it's to bring out all of her pain and sorrow. And of course, it's as though she says, hold on, none of this Naomi pleasant stuff, right? Pleasant, lovely, uh-uh, I won't have it, it's not true. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. This is a mockery on my life. This name is a mockery to my life. It reminds me of the Desire Street projects in New Orleans, built in 49 with federal Title III money. And by 58, they had an elementary school, Carver Junior High, Carver Senior High. But the buildings were poorly done, uh, difficult to maintain, and quickly ran down. And by the 90s, uh, the units began to fall apart and it kind of reflected the whole social structure of the projects. And by the 90s, it became one of the most dangerous projects in the whole country. Desire Street. And the names of the streets, abundance, benefit, treasure, vision, piety, humanity. And some living in desire might say desire. That's such a mockery of what's going on here. Call us destruction. Call us a wasteland. Call us loss, death. Call us murder. Because that's what was happening there. Well, that's, that's what Naomi's reacting to. This name means nothing. It, it's a diametrically opposed to my life. Twice she denies the meaning of her name. First, it's a command, don't call me. Then it's a question, why call me? Pleasant disaster is a better name. And this uh, Mara, taken from most uh, obviously from the place in the wilderness where they couldn't drink water because it was bitter and it was named Mara. And so it calls to mind that. It calls to mind the service of the Israelites under in, in Egypt, which in Exodus 1.14 says they made their lives bitter with hard service. And Job himself, with all the suffering that he went through, he said, he's made my soul bitter. Bitter indeed has the Almighty made my life. And this recalls what she said in verse 13, when she told the daughters 
My life is much too bitter for you to share because Yahweh's hand is stretched out against me. And now it's intensified with the verb form. And literally it reads the Almighty. We can't do this in English, but in Hebrew, the Almighty has bittered me, has bittered me. That means just, you know, invaded my life with sheer bitterness. And then the emphasis on the change. I went out full, but who brought me back poor? Yahweh did it. The emphasis, and this isn't a wrong thing she's doing. It's an honest thing she's doing. I went out full. I came back poor because of Yahweh. This is what he has done to me. I was almost as to say, I was full until Yahweh got a hold of me. Then it went south once he got a hold of me. I was good until Yahweh brought me down. Of all people, Yahweh himself, she charges Yahweh with this drastic change. And that's a good thing, okay? Sounds pretty rough, but this is a good thing that she's doing. A thing of faith that she's doing. And in verse 21, when she says that the Lord has testified against me. This is a law court word. Uh, it's usually used in a judicial context. So it has this technical force that God has testified against me. He's given testimony against me. And from, from such a source, Yahweh, there's no refutation of that testimony. There's nobody can stand and give another testimony. He's testified against me. It's over. And that carries into the second clause. So it means not so much as he says, the Almighty has brought calamity uh, against me, but this is the pronouncing of the sentence of calamity. See, so he's borne witness against me and he's pronounced the sentence, the verdict, calamity on you. She pictures herself, see, in a, a, as a defendant in a legal action. She's been found guilty. She's punished. But she doesn't even know the charges. <laughs> she doesn't even know what the testimony is against her. But since Yahweh alone controls these, he must have been the one to give witness against her. Nobody can refute it. She just has to endure the punishment. I, I just leave the whole explanation for it and all the responsibility in the, in the lap of Yahweh, in the lap of Shaddai, the Almighty. So she's not railing against chance or circumstance or any human being because that's not what she believes. It's Yahweh, Shaddai. She thinks of the irresistible power of God and when he determined that this bitterness should attack her, is all over. There's nothing she could do. She's helpless in the face of God's almighty power. But I want to tell you, there is no little faith here. This is great faith, great faith. The freedom of a faith that can ascribe full sovereignty, uh, uh, the full sovereignty to God himself. She takes God so seriously that with Job and Jeremiah, she resolutely openly voices her complaint. So it's a wonderful, robust example of honesty and forthrightness. And the key for us and what the narrator is teaching us through her, 
is that we cope with pain and uncertainty of life's tribulation and suffering to talk about who is involved here. To get comfortable with his sovereignty. And that's not an easy thing to do. Robert Layton, Puritan in the 16th century, wrote to a very depressed woman, I bid you vent your rage into the bosom of God. Vent your rage into the bosom of God. And when Christ laid down his life on the cross, we know God himself enters into and he shares the depths of this world's suffering and sin. He takes on his shoulders the responsibility for dealing with this suffering. And in the awful tearing scream of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shows his willingness in costly grace to be known in every human separation and pain. This is a cry that all of believers can enter into. And just to, on the back of this sheet that I handed out, you'll see listed just a few of the passages. Okay? Just as many as I could get on one page. That's what that is. Um, But all of these passages in which there is this kind of crying out. So we learn from this, brothers and sisters, that this is not just allowable. It's taught. It's virtually commanded that if you believe in God who is just and you believe in God who shows mercy. And when things come into your life that on the ground don't even come close to looking fair and just. Join in the cry. Join in the cries you've heard me say that is going on in heaven right now. They're saying, Revelation 6.10, check it out. In heaven, how long, how long, how long? So they're holy people crying that out, right? Perfectly happy and holy people, but still crying out how long. So this is one aspect of our faith. It's one aspect of our grappling with God honestly about what we're going through and how it looks to us. So she is modeling for us and the narrator is setting before us uh, utter honesty, the recognition of mysterious and sometimes seemingly unjust workings of God. And we're not ignorant of that in this church. We're not ignorant of no person in here is ignorant of that. Yet ultimately, this is a positive view of God that he controls the universe and he normally controls it with justice. And this just doesn't look right. Right. So you're grappling with God. So it's. Ignoring him is not the way to go or just throwing up and saying, and here's how bad we get. You know, you're going on a picnic and you say, wouldn't you know it would rain today, right? We just figure God's going to mess me over, right? God's going to do things. These people thought the opposite. God's going to do us good. God's going to be fair to us. God's going to do, you know, justly by his people. What's going on, God? 
We, we, we thought you were on our side. We thought you were with us. We don't see what's happening here. You see, there's an honesty there. There's a recognition that we expect God to do good things for us. Now, we, so there's a balance because all things work together for good. And so we know he's got this good purpose. But this doesn't uh, eliminate this cry that continues to go on in the hearts of God's people because we have faith, because we have real dealings with God, because it matters how we and God are doing and how uh, things look on the earth. And of course, uh, she falls in line with all believers that recognize it's God himself that does these things and allows these things in my life. The biblical mindset, not God standing by helplessly. Wait a minute now, Satan, you've gone just a bit too far in killing this person. I'm really getting upset about what you're doing. You know, like God's helpless watching Satan or that God's absent. He's turned his back and he turns around and says, what in the world's going on here? I turned my back for a minute and look what happens, you know. What, what other God is there but the God who is absolutely involved? As he says in Isaiah 45, uh, verses 6 and 7, There is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He's not ashamed of that, you know, like whispering the second part or whatever. I do all these things. He's never involved in evil. He's not a part of evil, but he is the sovereign over all things that happen. And he owns it. I'm the one that do, does these things because I'm the Lord and there is no other that is running this show. So God involved is our only comfort. That's our only comfort. It is God who is doing this. And I say again and again to myself, the God who gave his son gave this to me. The God, the, the, and then even more uh, close to Christ himself, the one who rules the world is the hand that rules the world is the hand that was crucified for me. The hand that was crucified for me is the hand that controls this situation. Still, I'm going to be honest with God about how it hurts, honest with God, about how frustrated I am, how confused I am, how it feels like he's turned his back on me. You see, you can, you can trust him and you can rely on that he's working all things together, but you can also cry out just the way you feel, the frustration that you're experiencing and, and, and let him know your heart and how well or not so good you're doing in any situation. And beware, though, it doesn't mean that God approves the tragedy or delights in the tragedy because he is, in one sense, an enemy to all our pain. He has saved us and died so that one day all our pain will be removed. So he is, in that sense, he's the final enemy to all pain and suffering that we will go through all loneliness, all loss, all tragedy. He's opposed to sin and all of its results in this world. He will finally remove it all from this world. 
That's why in Revelation, there's not only the emphasis of purity in heaven, but the happiness of heaven with sin and misery removed. You've heard it many times. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There shall be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. The former things have passed away. So don't think God is ultimately passive about your suffering, but he has a purpose in your suffering. And part of that purpose is for you to engage with him realistically. You know, what are you doing here, God? I don't get this. This you pull the rug out from under me and this hurts and, and I'm frustrated and I'm confused. I'm devastated. I'm numb. I'm paralyzed. I don't know what to do. Fair, fair things to cry out. That's an honest, wonderful interaction with God himself rather than say, well, you know, I figured it probably wouldn't turn out that way anyway, you know, because you're not really that much of a God involved in my life. You know, that would, that's, that tends to be my, that, that would be my temptation. It's just say, well, yeah, I don't deserve anything anyway. And you know, whatever, just downplay it instead of what Naomi's doing, which is being held before us as our example, uh, to honestly deal with God. And you might read this several times and, and, uh, Ask the Lord, Lord, teach me to be this honest. Teach me in the particulars of my life to be this straightforward with you. Because the narrator's not saying, oh, can you believe she did this? Can you believe she said this? This is terrible. Now, there perhaps is a little bit of uh, aspect of not recognizing, at least in this emotional moment, what God is doing. So we might emotionally cry out to God honestly And then as things, as we get more of our feet under us, we realize how God's going to work this out or we begin to trust that he's going to work it out. All of this is just an honest uh, interaction with God. But more briefly, I want to talk just a little bit about the signs of hope in the bitterness of life. We've got the cry of bitterness in the the, the, the cry in, in the bitterness of life. But what about the signs of hope in the bitterness of life? Well, one you see, uh, we could, if we were doing a discussion, we could ask about it. But verse 22, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So verse one of this chapter, there was famine. <clears throat> verse six, there's food for his people It's the barley harvest. So famine has turned into harvest in this chapter. You begin with famine, you end with harvest. So there's a bit of uplift in this last phrase, right? There's a slight ease in the terrible tension of this chapter. This seems to in some way reverse the downward spiral of the story. And even in the Hebrew, there's a pause at the end of verse 22. And they came to Bethlehem. At the beginning of barley harvest. Kind of the echo of, ah, possibilities, the barley harvest. What does this mean? What's going to happen now? And then the second thing to notice is that Yahweh is with us and Yahweh is with her. And the, as she cries out in verse 20 and 21, We want to be sympathetic with her loss, but we also want to say, yeah, Naomi, but Ruth's with you, right? You find yourself almost thinking, yeah, but Naomi, what what about Ruth? 
She doesn't mention Ruth. And as one commentator Hubbard says, she treats Ruth as if she were off stage despite her actual presence. She's standing right there, but she doesn't introduce her. She doesn't praise her. She doesn't acknowledge her. And so there's this stark omission that the narrator is laying before us. But actually her incredible confession of verses 16 and 17, this astonishing, gripping, heart-stopping confession is for us readers still ringing in our ears and we think it's ringing kind of into Naomi's suffering, even though she makes no reference to it in her outcry. We think her cry now is in the context of Ruth's confession of Yahweh, that Ruth has left everything and put all her confidence in Yahweh. And her faith tells us that Yahweh is worthy of absolute trust. Her faith puts hope in us readers that this Moabite woman believes in the goodness of God. She represents the goodness of God in Yahweh and she's with Naomi. As one commentator says, Ruth embodies Yahweh's presence with Naomi for good. She was the assurance of God's love and care and purpose all along the way. Think how differently it would have been if she just showed up by herself. But she showed up with confessing, committed Ruth. And again, this time, the the return is in terms of Ruth. Ruth the Moabite was with her who returned to, and, and to say she returned, well, she never was in Jerusalem. She never was in Judah. And it's a way for the narrator to say, these are her people now. This is her country now. She's returning to her country because it is hers now. It's a pretty remarkable little slick thing he does. Um, this, the, this the return of a foreign woman. Return of a Moabite who's never been there? Yeah, because she belongs to Yahweh now. Um, so Naomi has returned home empty, unfilled, and bitter. But the most significant thing of all that the narrator wants to leave us with in this chapter is that Ruth has come from Moab. Yahweh has not brought Naomi back empty. He's giving emphasis to her return as though to say, she said all this, yet Ruth the Moabitess had returned. And so the counter movement uh, to death and emptiness already sounded in this confession. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. So we know that she is not alone. She will never be alone. The dawn of Naomi's despair is right there with her. This is a completely different situation now. This confession of Yahweh creates vibrant, powerful possibilities. And he's picking up on this in verse 22. So I'm just going to list several applications for you and me as we enter into suffering, as we enter into loss. These are just aspects of hope to sprinkle in the midst of suffering. And I'll be be brief. One, we, we fellowship with him in our sufferings. 
He makes himself known in suffering. We taste him and know him in new ways in suffering. In suffering, he throws the door open to himself. So I have in italics in my notes, we have him in suffering. And we get more of him in suffering. Secondly, he makes us like himself through suffering. Refining silver, as he says in Malachi 3, you are silver. Sorry, you've got to be refined. You will be refined because you're so precious. And he's making something precious of you. He's purifying us, making us beautiful, making us like Christ through suffering, which we say in our best moments, that's what we want. We don't want it like that, but that's what we want to be like Christ. So we have him in suffering. We become like him in suffering. Those are signs of hope in the midst of loss. Thirdly, he makes known his glory through our suffering. We partake of the misery of this life alongside everyone else, but how we react to it, how we grow in it, how we worship in it and love others in the midst of it, that constitutes the difference we bring. That's our light in darkness. The glory of God in our lives is the hope and faith and love that we show in the midst of loss. As Peter says, the glory of God rests upon you. And it's manifested to others. So we have him, we become like him, and we make him known. Those are encouraging things in the midst of suffering that we can always hold on to. Fourthly, there's encouragement and fellowship with the people of God as you suffer. There's been faith and trust throughout Christian history in every kind of suffering. The Spirit has enabled them, the Spirit will enable us. And then he gives us to each other for encouragement in suffering. As Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 1, that we went through terrible suffering so that we can in turn help you in your suffering. Comfort to you as God comforted us. Suffering just makes us closer and closer to one another. Satan's affliction drives us not only into the arms of Christ, but it drives us into each other's arms. So we have him, we become like him, we are made like, we make him known, and we have each other in suffering. Two more. <laughs> the pattern of scripture, is, of scripture is loss precedes fulfillment. Emptiness precedes wholeness. Pain and disease precede healing. God sets up problems, brings about resolution and overwhelming fulfillment. Even Christ's suffering preceded his resurrection. And so Paul says, if we're God's children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him that we may be glorified with him. So loss and suffering always precede fulfillment and resurrection. We have a certain future that is really underscored in suffering. It's highlighted in suffering. You suffer in order that you might be glorified. We have a certain future. And Christ has gone before us in suffering and has passed through to resurrection. I, I like to think of Jesus. In fact, commentators have... Uh, or translators have sometimes changed the meaning of the verb when Jesus was at uh, Lazarus' 
tomb. And the word means he was angry. But they want to say, well, we're not sure what he was angry at. Was he angry at false uh, mourners? Was he angry at this or that? Can't find a reason. So Jesus was grieving or Jesus was sad or whatever. But it means he was angry. And uh, one of the Westmen of one of the Princeton theologians uh, wrote about this in the emotional life of our Lord. And he said, and I think he was right, he was angry that his friend was dead. Okay? And in anger, he goes to the tomb and says, This ain't happening. I'm raising my, my friend. He's going to live. I love that. The fierceness of the shepherd who's going to rescue his sheep, right? Who's in the, the hands or in the jaws of the death uh, line, uh, the line of death, and he's going to free him from that. And brothers and sisters, he has the same attitude toward you. And he is going to bring you to resurrection because he's angry that anything would have you. He's angry at death and he will vanquish death forever. And you will never suffer death again once resurrection comes, right? So that's, he's gone before us in suffering. He's passed through resurrection. And he himself then did that so that he would be able to raise us, to guarantee that all of us would experience resurrection. So we can always know we have a pioneer in our suffering and a brother in our suffering who's gone to resurrection and he will bring us to. That's why he did it, to bring us through there as well. Well, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the uh, incredible honesty, uh, forthrightness of Naomi's cry and her rejection of her own name, Um, even though we know by the end of this book, uh, it can be pleasant again. And you were working all along through her bitterness to bring about uh, a joy uh, that she couldn't have imagined. And so you're doing with us. So, Lord, give us this rich, uh, this rich pattern of of tapestry of reactions to you so that we're honest with our pain, honest with our suffering, honest with our confusion, our paralysis, our our numbness. Um, And yet, Lord, that we do put ourselves in your hands. We do believe in and put our hope in what you are doing in our lives, even though we feel like at times we can hardly stand it. Um, Give us grace, Lord to have all of these wonderful reactions to our glorious and great sovereign God. Uh, And give us, as we've just gone over, these signs of hope that we have. Our interactions with you, uh, our uh, knowing you, our making you known, Lord, our, our having each other. Thank you, Lord, for these blessed comforts that we have in all that we suffer. We pray that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.